the crude fiber method just doesn't do that very well. So the move is going to go to total dietary fiber, which has been used in the human food industry for, you know, for decades now. But um, so, and, and if you can say total dietary fiber, there are different methods of total dietary fiber, but, but it's better in what we often use in our laboratory is, you know, you, there are assays out there that can measure soluble, the soluble portion, the insoluble portion, because that ratio of insoluble to soluble fiber can be pretty important, whether it's due to laxation, due to fermentability, yep. viscosity, you know, there's all these other properties that kind of differ between the two uh, big categories. A whole new era of communication in the pet food industry is coming. Now you have the brightest minds in the global pet food industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition. Make one call, find it all. Wilbur Ellis Nutrition, your partner for pet ingredients and services. Welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast Show, a weekly podcast where you'll find cutting-edge insights and all that's working in the pet food industry. Tired of one-size-fits-all solutions that don't quite fit? At Wilbur Ellis, we're bringing custom back to the customer. We know that for your pet food and treats to shine on the shelf, you need to start with the best. After all, even the best recipe is only as good as its ingredients. From nutrition to preservation to blending and bottling, make one call to Wilbur Ellis Nutrition to find it all. We don't sell to you, we work with you. A true partnership to meet your needs. Follow Wilbur Ellis Nutrition on LinkedIn to learn how partnering with a purpose could double the power of your team. Well, hello and welcome to the Pet Food Science Podcast, where our goal is to share research findings to help support the continual innovation in the pet food and nutrition industries. I'm your host, Dr. Kate Shoveler, and I'm here today with Dr. Kelly Swanson from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign to discuss about uh, dietary fiber and how pet food companies should consider its role. Thank you, Kelly, for being here and uh, welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be here. Great. Well, I thought that maybe for our uh, listeners that aren't familiar uh, with yourself or the program at the University of Illinois, that if you wouldn't mind introducing uh, yourself and uh, a little bit more about the University of Illinois' research and teaching program. Sure. Um, well, if I go back uh, just a couple decades, I grew up in northern Minnesota. I was pre-vet my whole life. I was on a I grew up on a farm, and so. Um, education wise, um, was pre-vet. I, I got my, ended up getting my degree in animal sciences from North Dakota State, uh, University in Fargo. Um, from there, moved down to Illinois and, uh, I guess I've been, I've been here ever since. Um, I got a master's and a PhD in nutritional sciences. Um, I did a postdoc in functional genomics. And then, um, since, you know, after that, I, I joined here on the faculty. And so I've been a faculty member in animal sciences for uh, about almost 20 years now. And then I've been a member of the Division of Nutritional Sciences. And I've also been an adjunct at the, the Department of Veterinary Clinical Medicine at the vet school. So research and teaching, there's there's quite a, quite a bit going on here. Um, as part of our research program, um, I am a I guess, trained as kind of a, a comparative nutritionist. And so that's kind of followed through um, in, into my research program. Um, l- most of our research now is dog and cat focused. Um, and it's also focused either in, in the gastrointestinal health area 
obesity or I usually kind of that third category is novel ingredient testing. And so a lot of those are novel proteins and looking at, you know, protein quality, digestibility, things like that. Um, and some of the areas do kind of overlap a little bit as well. They used to be dis- obesity in the microbiota and the gut health area used to be distinct and now they're the microbiomes everywhere. So that's uh, usually a part of most of our, our studies as well. But um we have, a, you know, myself and a couple of collaborators, we have a nice group here of graduate students and postdocs that are mainly, again, focused on the companion animal uh, nutrition and nutrigenomics area. Great, great. And I think it's uh, pretty important for our listeners to, uh, you're, you're extraordinarily, a very, very humble individual, but you're also uh, the Kraft Heinz uh, Company Endowed Professor in Human Nutrition. So most people think of you as a pet nutritionist, uh, but when, when I sit down with my human nutrition colleagues. They know you just as well as my pet nutrition colleagues. Uh, so uh, that's a that's a great attri- attribute. And you're also the interim director of the Division of Nutri- uh, Nutritional Sciences. So I don't know how you do it all, Kelly, but um, uh, thank you for everything that you do for nutritional sciences across the board. So maybe to to ground our listeners too, I I, I want to make sure that they know that I plan on inviting you back to talk about the microbiome. Um, but today uh, we're going to focus on dietary fiber, and um, I I think maybe a great place to start everybody is let's just talk a little bit about how the definition of dietary fiber has changed over time and what it means to us today and to the pet food industry. Yeah, I think this topic is, um, I I think, very important. I'm biased, of course, but I I do think it's very important, but I do think it's an area that's very misunderstood by some. Um, And when, when you think about fiber, I think there are there are chemical assays. You can define what fiber is. You can think about um, conceptually kind of what fiber is and then even physiologically, like what effects it has. But so it, the definitions have changed over time. And I think, I guess I'd say the most relevant definition recently is, is what FDA defined fiber to be in 2016. So until that point, FDA didn't really have a definition. They used other, you know, the Institute of Medicine or some other body that, that kind of defined what fiber was. And so once they uh, kind of defined what fiber was, that certainly affected the human food industry. But I think that a lot of the, I think conceptually that affects probably the, the, the pet food industry as well. So, you know, so the definition has changed over time. It's really non most for the most fibers. It's non-digestible carbohydrates. Um, they can be soluble, insoluble. But they have to be, according to FDA, at least three uh, monosaccharides long. So it can't be a disaccharide, but it has to be at least three. Um, and then they're and, and it's really in, intrinsic to plant material. Um, that's that's the first step. There is another type of fiber that's kind of part of the definition is if they're synthetics or something that's been extracted, but the, and they show a, a, a physiological benefit, then they also can be fibers as well. So 20 years ago, a lot of the fibers were more plant, completely plant-based, more probably insoluble fibers, those, those that we think it, traditionally non-starch polysaccharides. But, but especially the last decade, um, there are more soluble fibers and some that are maybe either synthesized, like some of the prebiotics that we have, or have been extracted from a plant. So instead of, you know, you're eating some grain, like a whole grain, now it's an extract of that. And so it's the fibrous portion, but it might have different properties than the, than the, if it's just intrinsic in the plant. And so 
uh, you have to kind of prove a little bit more and have more data to show that it's still a fiber it, when it's kind of taken out of its natural state. And so, um, but this definition, it, it's, it's fairly complicated once you get that. So that's, you know, non-digestible carbohydrates, you know, it, it avoids digestion basically. Um, but then you get into, okay, there's exceptions to the rule at some at some point, but um, largely speaking, that's what most people think as as fiber. Um, okay, so I I just have a couple of my own. Uh, of course, this is where these podcasts go is your own curiosity, but um, so largely around plant fibers, and I think you know that's that's largely where we've seen the pet food industry drive um, fiber in into their formulations. Um, I'm intensely curious too, as, as we know, black soldier fly larvae is, um, uh, approved for dogs, right? And I think is under approval for cats now. And, uh, it contains chitin, which is also fermentable, um, and is an oligosaccharide. How does, where does something like chitin fall? Yeah, that's where I think over the years has been more, I I think, a greater appreciation for other substances that probably and in the laboratory will actually analyze as fiber. So chitin, yeah, even even cartilage like and and, and if you think about dogs and cats in or let's say wolves in the wild or or wild cats um, or our house cats that are catching mice or, or birds. Whether it's the you know the the fur or the the skin, and there there are certain components that aren't going to be digested. Actually, the, the term animal fiber has come out too. So it's, I think we usually have thought about whole prey in that scenario, but the chitin and other, you know, once you get into these insect meals, you know, certainly they the larvae usually most of these insects are harvested at the larva stage, so there's less chitin than there would be in the adult insect. But still, there is, um, you know, a measurable portion of fiber that's going to be there, and so that, that's where. I would love to do more research on that. We've looked at kind of from a protein quality perspective, but um, there are byproducts of those, some of those insects as well that you might have, you might use the whole insect, but there are, as they're, as they're growing and developing, they're shedding some of that, you know, to, to, I forget the proper terminology uh, from um, someone that knows more about the insects as they're, as they're developing in the different pupil, pupa stages, they kind of, they're shedding their skin, so to speak, so they can grow larger. And so there, there are some of that in the, the, that's available, but then even in the final, you know, larvae, there's the chitin that's there as well. So um, there are some interesting areas that I'd be looking into. We should see how fermentable are they and the structure in some of our publications, you know, at some level, they look like the, you know, crabs and shrimp and, um, you know, the shells, but, but they are different. You know, it's, it's a different, you know, the thickness of them. And, um, I, I guess they're softer than, than the, the hard, you know, um, something you, you find in some of those other animals, but yeah, it's, um, there are other fibers certainly that's out there, not just the, the plant-based fibers, which still make up the bulk of, I think the fiber, but, um, in the lab too, it, you'll, it, they'll analyze as fiber. So certainly they're they're different than um, other proteins, even if they're you know there's some protein that's connected to them. Okay, so I, I think I I need to make sure. I think I made a mistake that I I want you to correct. Chitin is not an oligosaccharide; it's a glycoprotein. It, well, there's protein connected, but it is it is carbohydrate based. Yeah, so it's it's not uh, the same as cellulose. It, it's probably. I think activity wise and um, 
you know, it's it's not. Some people have claimed it's probably a, it maybe have prebiotic activity. I don't think it's probably a a prebiotic, so to speak. I, I do, but I do. It, it's similar to cellulose, I would I would say. But but there's some there is some protein attached to it as well. So um, yeah, part of it's yeah. It, so it's almost in the middle of. <laughs> It's certainly not, you know, it's not plant-based, of course, but it is different than when we think about animal fiber, whether it's cartilage or hide or something like that. It is, it's kind of a, maybe it's in its own category, I, I think, that definitely needs more study because it's, you know. Um, yeah, and, and probably some chemists involved uh, uh, as well. Yeah, I yeah, always, exactly. um, w- which brings me um, with the, the, the chemist part, I, I also am well aware of the guidance uh, around how we analyze different fibers. Now, in when you offer that to the pet food industry and, and, I know that you also um, have an amazing laboratory technician uh, that that is a wizard uh, when it comes to analytical techniques. But would you mind sharing a little bit about what your guidance is to pet food companies on the analytical techniques for this really dive? I, I think we've already uh shared with the the listeners how diverse fibers are, but can you talk about a little bit about the importance of choosing the right analytical techniques to measure those? Sure. Yeah. When I, I know even in class, when I, when I go over fatty acids, I go through proteins and then, and then we get to, to carbohydrates for some, some of those, you know, there's, there's a few linkages, you know, the options you have when you get to dietary fiber, it's very complicated. It's very complicated. And some of these, you know, I know you can have large proteins and large, you know, lipid molecules as well, but some of these fibers, it's just thousands or, or even millions of monosaccharides all linked together and very complicated uh, structures. So kind of thinking about it, uh, you know, almost three dimensionally, but also at the, at the molecular level, it's in the lab. There are, there are some issues I would say are in sometimes problems that thing are, things are measuring as fiber when maybe they're not, they shouldn't be fiber. And um, in other assays that don't, they don't pick up what is fiber. And so, you know, the still on the label, this is going to be changing in the next few years now with, with at least here in the United States with the, with the change in the nutrition label and some of the requirements, but crude fiber has been used, but crude fiber, as the name implies, is a very crude assay and it, it's very inaccurate. So it's, it's been around for over 100 years. And so um, it doesn't measure a lot of the fiber. It doesn't measure any soluble fiber, number one. And also it's very, you know, you're using just strong acid and the whole, and, and again, it's a very crude method, but you're trying to mimic basically in the laboratory what would be digested and then what's left over. So you have um, you know, the crude fiber method just doesn't do that very well. So the move is going to go to total dietary fiber, which has been used in the human food industry for you know, for decades now. But um, so and if you can say total dietary fiber, there are different methods of total dietary fiber, but but it's better in what we often use in our laboratory is, you know, you there are assays out there that can measure soluble, the soluble portion, the insoluble portion, because that ratio of insoluble to soluble fiber can be pretty important, whether it's due to laxation, due to fermentability, viscosity. You know, there's all these other properties that kind of differ between the two uh, big categories. Um, so total dietary fiber is certainly where I think the industry is going. And what I always recommend, whether before it was even required on the label, I've always uh, advised people to you need to know what your true fiber uh, component or, or concentration is. And I, from like on the consulting side and sometimes on the research side, we've had, uh, you know, 
sponsors with with diets to say, well, we're you know on the consulting side, we're having issues with stool quality, and so I'll say, you know, one of the first things I go to is, you know, is is it, you know, what's the diet? Is it being how is it processed? Is it being cooked properly? You know, you go through this line of questioning, but dietary fiber is one of the first questions that comes up as well. That how much fiber do you have? And 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 so if they give me a crude fiber value, I ask for the, you know, do you have a total dietary fiber value? Um, just as an example, there was, there was a company then they had a lot of just fruits and vegetable pumices and things like that, that came into it. And this is, you know, a, probably a decade ago now, but their fiber value is four to 5%. Well, I said, well, what's the total dietary fiber? We don't have that. So they, they sent it off for fiber values. They come back and they were about 20 to 21% total dietary fiber. And so that tells you about 15% was probably in the soluble portion or, or part of that insoluble portion, but crude fiber wasn't picking it up. So that answered the kind of the question or the problem right away that you need to reformulate to get your, you know, your total dietary fiber down. And it's one thing you can have weight loss diets or other diets that has 20% fiber, but not if it's, you know, the majority is soluble fiber. So they had to reformulate and that kind of took care of it. Not everything with stool quality issues is, is around fiber, but it, fiber can really uh, cause a problem if it's not, if it's not carefully kind of monitored and, you know, it depends on where it's coming from. And um, so it definitely total dietary fiber versus crude fiber. Um, they're, they're vastly different. And then unfortunately there's not a, on the research side, we've unofficially kind of measured these for years and years, but we have one paper that we published that kind of showed the relationship. The problem is there's no equation that you can, have because it depends on what fibers you have there to say oh this is my crude fiber value and here's a factor you multiply by to get your total dietary fiber it just it doesn't work that way so you really have to measure it with with, with tdf and so um that's something that's coming and so it, it's it's and it's going to be a bit of a i think maybe a shock to some companies that don't understand fiber very well that when they move when when the regulations say now you need total dietary fiber almost every diet on the market is going to increase in fiber. It's just, and it not in reality, nothing changes, but, but the assay is now changed and they're going to see the true value of what it actually is versus the crude fiber value. So I think in the next few years, we're going to have some people that are maybe confused about this topic a, a little bit and might need some guidance or, or some, some support uh, when they see these values changing on their, on their labels, because it's um, it, for, to some, it might be a bit of a shock but they're fi- if their if their diet formulas are saying the same, it's just now you have a better accurate, you know, more accurate assessment of your diets, and so we'll we'll see how that goes. But I do think it'll be it'll be better in the long run, so people know what they have um, versus in the past where we've, it's kind of been shooting in the dark. So yeah, and you're going to be able to get even a better perspective at, as you're working with people. Um, I, I I think that a lot of people don't. Um, understand how much we like data. Um, and sometimes, you know, we're dealing with data that only gives us a little bit of a perspective and we're asking for different analyticals um, because we need to take that. Na- we, we need to understand that that next piece of data to actually provide really good advice. So um, on that note, a couple things. Um, uh, can you I think I knew this at one time, but I don't know. Uh, when does the regulation change and when does everybody have to have TDF on the label? 
It's my understanding that, you know, the, the AFCO voted, they voted uh, just here a couple weeks ago. So I, I think it'll be in the AFCO guide starting 2024. And then it's going to be, I'm not sure, I'd have to look at it more specifically. And this, it includes not only going from crude fiber to total dietary fiber, but the whole kind of nutrition label is going to change a little bit. And so things are going to change. I think it's, you know, so some companies, and it probably depends on the the state uh, you know, control officials and the regulators a little bit, are they going to allow, you know, if, if, if people are ready tomorrow to put it on the, on the shelf, can they do that? Or do they have to, I think that's going to be okay to do, but some companies it's going to be a few years before they're actually uh, made to have the, the, the change. And so I think it might, I think it's you know, something like four to five years. So we're talking, it's, for a while here, there probably will be some confusion. If you're someone reading a label, looking at going down the aisle, you're going to see some probably new labels, some old labels. And so the look of the label is one thing and what's on the label. So uh, beyond fiber, there's some other changes. It's, it's going to look different. Um, but then when, if people are starting to compare fiber for a while, I can see it. some are still going to be crude fiber and some are going to be total dietary fiber. So there's going to be probably some con- confusion out there. Um, but it's going to be over the next, I think, about five years that uh, that, that we'll start seeing these changes or there'll have to be changes. But it does, you know, if you think about this fiber issue, ingredient suppliers, pet food companies, every, you're going to have to you're going to have to update your databases on what these ingredients contain, what your diets contain. And, you know, at, um, it's going to change quite a bit, you know, changing your labels, but, um, you know, it, it's going to be a big overhaul. It, it's going to be a big deal. And, um, and, and fiber is only part of that, but I do think it's, it's going to be better in the long run, but I think there's going to be whether, <laughs> whether it's people that are frantic and worried, you know, fear mongering or, or even, you know, like on the consulting side, companies wondering, you know, looking for guidance. Do they need to reformulate? Cause now their fiber is higher than they thought it was. And so, um, it's, it's, uh, I think it's going to be an active area. Well, I, I think, and correct me if you're wrong, but, but I think the guidance I would give is, um, you don't have to reformulate if it's higher than you thought it was, but if you're having problems and it's higher than you thought it was, then we might have something to discuss. But I think it's also important, right? I, I tell people this about amino acid content all the time. Um, we really have to, they have to be able um uh, to have a really good idea about their ingredient database. If I start telling them that they need uh, to watch the balance of the amino acids. And so you need, it doesn't mean that you're running a full nutrient profile on every ingredient that you bring through your door. It means that you do that upfront work about understanding the chemical characterization of your ingredients and how variable it tends to be. And if you do that work, work um, up front, it's going to pay dividends for your for- formulation targets in the long run. So, um, so clearly, you're saying to go out, get a really good idea about your TDF in your ingredients and in your final diets. Now, as you explore and understand what these changes are going to make for you. Where where um, do pet food companies go for the uh, best TDF analysis um, 
because uh, it, my experience in Canada, a little bit different. We, we have actually uh, gone into the States quite a bit for contract um, analytical on TV, TDF, if that's what we've needed. But where do you suggest people go? Yeah, that's a, a tricky question. We, you know, for us, we usually do our own analysis. So we, you know, and not that I want a whole bunch of people sending us data, you know, samples necessarily because we, we do research. We don't, we do some service contract, but not necessarily from that perspective. But so we don't send out too much, but I guess um, if we can say a name, I guess we usually send ours to Eurofins if we, if we do. Um, I know there are machines that you can run fiber on. There are different assays and there's a few that are like AOEC, AOAC approved methods and things like that. If you just want to, like on the label, you don't need to necessarily report soluble insoluble. So you can just run the total dietary fiber. Um, but still, and the assays are, are quite similar, any, uh, you know, whether you do one or the other, but just knowing total fiber. Um, if you really are having, like you said, having trouble, I totally agree. Then it's useful to have soluble insoluble because that sometimes will tell you if you have too much soluble fiber, you might have an issue there. So, um, it, you know, there are, there are certainly contract labs. I'll say the one thing I would for, for anybody, um, the assays work fairly well. Um, whether it's in our lab, whether we ship it out, if it's a kibble diet, kibble diets, uh, and if there's not a lot of fat, if there's a lot of fat, there is a, we, we extract most of the fat out before you start running it. Um, and it's still, you get, pretty decent repeatability in, in data where you run into trouble or where we've run into trouble. And I think what is going to be more problematic for people, anything that's maybe canned diets, but it's certainly fresh and human grade diets. He's kind of this new, uh, these new foods and whether it's the texture, the fat content, I'm not sure. Certainly the machines uh, that, that are the people, I, I don't want to, uh, <laughs> say, any, say any names at all, but certainly there are machines that you just add a sample and it gives you the fiber content. Um, we've run into problems there where, where accuracy can be a problem. So I just beware before you invest and buy a whole bunch of machines and you think you're going to do it in-house and it's going to be easy. Um, I would say you're probably going to have some bumps in the road and not that the machines can't be useful to you, but usually it's if you have a kibble food, it's, it's more uh, plug and play and you can, you can put them in use and I think use them. But these other formats, um, especially because you need to dry the food. So how do you usually you've, in our case, we freeze dry the food. Well, then it gets really fluffy. And if there's a lot of fat there, they get really the consistency. It's just more difficult to deal with. And then even in the, in the tubes themselves, when you're doing these reactions where you're trying to remove the fat, the protein, the starch, they just, uh, I I think there's going to be a Adjustments are needed, I would say. And we do that in our lab as well. You try to get the you fat extracted um, and you have to adjust enzyme levels because you're, again, you're trying to mimic digestion really to see what's fiber. And it's just, it's not the same. So there's not just one, you know, thinking that we have one little script or a recipe to do your fiber assay and that's going to work for all diets. It's going to be, it's a little bit more complicated than that. Um, one thing I'll tell people that if you're not, if you haven't checked your prices, uh, the crude fiber is a very quick and dirty assay and it's it's fairly cheap total dietary fiber is going to be more than what you probably pay for a normal proximate analysis panel of protein and fat and ash and all these other things put together so it the total dietary fiber assay is not cheap um, and it takes several days to run it's not a, a quick assay to run so um yeah there's there's going to be some issues there <laughs> with that too 
Yeah, yeah. I, I think maybe, you know, and I hadn't really thought about this, but you're really raising the flags here to, you know, get ready, get your finances wrapped around it. It's your understanding of your ingredients wrapped around it and understand how your process also brings that together. And and some some um, some pet food companies are going to have a greater problem with analysis because of some of the analytical problems that you've had. So I think that's that's tremendous uh, guidance uh, uh, for the industry. Um, selfishly, I have to ask, um, because, well, actually, maybe it's not selfish because we're both comparative nutritionists. Um, I, I Will this affect all monogastric nutrition approaches? And when I say that, um, it, swine, poultry, and I would, I would say, Interestingly, you would love to know how this could impact um, the hindgut fermenter, like the rabbit in the horse. Um, it's a, it's an interesting. So it's just my my curiosity as we as we kind of look at this. Is it potential that this is going to be a widespread um, uh, rethinking about uh, our ingredients in the difference between crude fiber and total dietary fiber? Yeah, I think, you know, from a regulatory perspective, it might not, but certainly I've served on, and we have, we have swine and, and poultry nutritionists that serve on some of our graduate student committees. And we, uh, you know, uh, we, we serve on their committees. And so um, we get into this topic and we have in recent years, uh, you know, poultry that they don't usually eat too much fiber with swine. It depends on if you have a, you know, a gestating sow versus a market, you know, a growing pig or something that certainly the diet's going to be different. And fiber can be useful um, in that respect. Uh, in that effect, you know, the sow doesn't, you know, gain too much weight. And so you have dystocia issues. And if they're you know, overweight, things like that. Um, but what the, the, I guess the approach has been lately in some of our, again, I say our at the University of Illinois uh, researchers is looking at, we know there's fiber there. And, and, and oftentimes in the livestock side, most people have moved from crude fiber to, you know, the acid detergent fiber, neutral detergent fiber, especially in the ruminant side where you get a better handle of fiber. It still doesn't really analyze, you know, soluble fibers. And it's still not as good as total dietary fiber, but a lot of those people have moved to at least the detergent fiber system, which is better. Um, but there's been that philosophy and we've had some discussions uh, on these committees of, okay, you know, don't use crude fiber. If you really want to know, okay, you have a corn and soy diet to your, you're feeding your pigs and maybe you're you know, you're, you're, you're swapping one ingredient for another or, you know, whatever strategy it is, or it's a new cultivar of, you know, a, a grain or something like that. Um, you better know what, you know, actual fiber you have. And so we've kind of already kind of done that a little bit of that, but I think it will really affect, it, it should have any effect on these other uh, animals if it, if people haven't been thinking about it already, because it, it's the actual fiber that's there. So whether you're measuring it or not, that's why I kind of think you have the, when you think about fiber, you can define it, what you can measure in the lab you can kind of conceptually say what this is, what fiber it is, but then actually what I say physiologically is how does it affect maybe appetite or blood glucose and lipid absorption or just digestib- digestibility um, on the gut health side, laxation, uh, stool quality issues. And that uh, we mean, would apply to, you know, especially if you have swine farms and poultry farms where you have thousands of animals in a, in a small location having a small effect on stool odor or, you know, or just other characteristics certainly um, can have a huge effect. And so with our pets, certainly it's, we have that, if you're picking up, especially a dog, you're picking up after your dog, you're cleaning the litter box, you have some, you, 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 it's kind of a reminder of what your pet's eating and what, what, you know, what they're depositing in your lawn or wherever it's going. Um, But when you have, 
know, all these animals at one point, it kind of has a, whether it's a environmental issue or not, or just a, you know, worker or even animal health, you know, people have looked at, you know, ammonia levels or other, or even the lagoon, how that's going to, you know, management of the waste is, is, um, um, you know, fiber can add to more waste, certainly if you had too much fiber there, but um, in some of these swine and poultry diets, so you, you kind of have to accept there's a certain level of fiber that's there. And then can, can you make it more, can you have an animal, you know, digest more of it? So that there have been, you know, studies with different enzymes. We think about phytase all the time, but there are a lot of fi- fiber degrading enzymes that have been added to some of these diets as well and the, on swine and poultry to see if, can you get more out of that, you know, out of those fibers? So the animal's growing faster or uh, it's less that's being polluted or, you know, whatever. Um, maybe I shouldn't say pollution, but at least, you know, what's being excreted, I guess, is maybe is less. So yeah, it's got all kinds of uh, uh, implications, I think. And I think some people are acknowledging that or have acknowledged it already, but I, I think there's probably more in that space that can be done too. So, yeah, yeah, and of and of course we could share more. And I think there's very few of us, and I think maybe there's there's more, uh, especially um, you know a lot of the pet nutritionists. I don't think people really appreciate that most of us are actually comparative nutritionists by nature. And I find it fascinating that you'll get two totally different responses uh, from species who have very similar gastrointestinal tracts. When you look at them anatomically, you start to kind of bore down uh, to the next to to the levels of of um, enzyme abundance and activity in the gastrointestinal tract to the transporters to the to just inherent characteristics between the species are very very different, which speaks to needing species-specific data. But what's really helpful is when you start to look across species, you really start to get a better understanding rate of how how these different chemicals change things differentially among them. So anyways, that's that was just me geeking out for a second. But um, you you so I've asked you about other species, um, but one thing, and maybe I'll start it with with a question because I don't think that a lot of um, individuals uh, might know this. And of course, we make aseptic foods for the most part for our dogs and cats, and. In fact, when you compare it to human nutrition and you compare it to infant feeding, um, we've for a long time, you know, really gone to bre- uh, breast is best and the importance of breastfeeding children. Of course, we do need formula for people who uh, where where that is not possible. And there's a, a lot of reasons why breastfeeding is not possible. But now we know that there are specific oligosaccharides. Um, and along with that maternal consumption of, of the maternal um, bacteria, uh, what do we know about puppy and kittens and the oligosaccharides in their milk, which is really where everything starts? That's their first fiber that they're getting right what do we know anything about that kelly a little bit before i just wanted to, i was going to go back to your other point too that i would say uh, for the dog and cat and the, i wear the the craft heinz hat as well on the human nutrition side dogs and cats are much more similar to i think humans in many because you if you feed a fiber that either works or doesn't work you can see this the stool quality change where you know, I work at our university, I'm sure your, 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 your universities and others, we use a lot of rodent models and that's where they are not a good model at all. You know, they're eating their feces and actually it's, it's 
often difficult to cause them diarrhea where dog and cat, especially the cat, their tolerance level is, is even significantly different than the dog. Like you said, we need species specific data, whether it's microbiota, whether it's stool quality, whatever it might be. But, uh, so I wanted to just say that, that certainly I think if you using comparative data, human data actually are much more useful for, for pets than if you use rodent data and swine and poultry are, you know, different enough probably too. the, the pig and the dog might be somewhat comparable, but even then you think about how much they're eating and just, you know, it, what they're eating is, is quite different. So, um, but to your question, there, there have been a, a couple papers and we've published, um, we published one paper and it was in collaboration with uh, a couple other uh, universities and, 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 a, and a company um, that have looked at the, the milk of dogs and cats. And so there are um, there are oligosaccharides there. And certainly another interesting thing, when you look at the milk and these milk oligosaccharides, you know, in humans, there's over 250 that have been identified. And maybe the number is even higher than that now. But individual when it comes down to it, there's a there's a handful of really predominant oligosaccharides that kind of dominate. The, the oligosaccharides that are there. And those are the ones that you're, you're starting to see more research on. But I still think it's best, you know, mother nature knows best, right? So it's probably good to have the whole profile, not just one of those oligosaccharides. But um, one thing that's interesting is the profile of dog and cat milk oligosaccharides are one, the profile is more similar to humans than many other species. The other thing is that while they're still probably tenfold, five to tenfold, lower in concentration, they're still probably tenfold higher than what's in a cow in cow's milk or some other species. So the, both the concentration is higher in dog and cat milk than a lot of other species. And actually the profile, if you look at what, what oligosaccharides are there is more similar to humans. So it's the human though, it, it's really diverse. And there's some thought that among even mothers or gen, there's genetic differences and the, at least conceptually, I don't think anyone's proven it, but the oligosaccharide profile of a mother's milk genetically fits their infant versus, you know, maybe better than another, than someone else's infant, you know? So if you think about, um, you know, breast milk and people that can't breastfeed, there are milk donors and, and you can get, you know, from certain hospitals, you can get milk. It's still going to be better than formula. I would think, and I, I know the formula makers are making the formulas as good as they can, but there are some things you just can't replicate very well. And so I think, um, there's, there's a lot of research in that area that's being done. And, you know, some at our university have kind of looked at that on the dog and cat side, there's really a few papers using the, the, methods we have now to even describe what the microbiome changes are as they as they mature but also again it's it's a a couple papers now that have been published on what are the oligosaccharides that are there in in dog and cat milk because it um it's just not well studied and not many studies in general of what what you know dog and milk composition you know you look at you know what proteins are there and certainly lactose is, is there lipid profile and end up antibodies people have looked at that but um and there's very few studies on that even you know the, the, that itself but um, when it comes to oligosaccharides we published a paper and i think and that was with i guess i'll just say that was a collaboration with uc davis and and walt the waltham center with mars uh, but nestle purina also prior to that had published a paper as well um, but other than that, I don't know if there's any other milk oligosaccharide papers that, that are out there really um, like describing what there are. Yeah. And, and the reason that I bring this up, because um, I, I think that that we often in pet nutrition and, and, and don't 
really give enough credit to how important early nutrition is for the lifetime health and longevity of the animal. And if you go especially into the human literature, we we are starting to understand that not just what the mom eats when she's pregnant and eats when she's lactating, but how you choose to feed your young toddler has implications for the chronic diseases that risk that they have in the future. And we this is this has remained unexplored in dog and cat health and well-being, really. And I think it's a great opportunity to put some money towards because I think it's needed. Um, but the next step then, so we've talked a little bit about um, milk with um, pup- for puppies and kittens. So now, now, can you talk me through these changes in life stage and maybe what, what companies should be thinking about when they think about the types of fibers or, or maybe here you're going to talk a little bit about um, more so prebiotic fibers at different stages as well. Um, and, and how that changes into adulthood and then maybe just kind of end off with, um, what, what to do. We know so little about senior mammals in general, but maybe some of your thoughts about what to do with fiber and gastrointestinal health in the senior pet too, as three really distinct physiological states. Yeah, no, certainly you move into whether they're, you know, you wean a, a kitten or a puppy when they're six weeks of age or eight weeks of age, you know, at some point they're still fairly immature gut. So some of their, you know, just digesting nutrients is, is different and their gut microbiota is not stable. You can really influence it greatly when an animal's young like that. And it doesn't have to be even at birth. It's even around the weaning time. We've done some studies there where you move them to one diet or the other and they, they really move where an adult animal is more stable. I mean, their digestive tract, their immune system, their microbiota is a lot more stable. So there's a lot more influence that can be kind of, kind of put on onto them. Um, Especially it can be a kind of a stressful period of time as well. So I do think um, when animals are younger, um, basically because they have to eat more food as well. And especially if it's a wet food, you, Fibers, you know, a lot of fiber is not your friend. You, you don't want to dilute out the energy so much. And so, you know, you talk about obesity, diabetes later on in life, fiber can be a more of a benefit. I think you have to be more careful for a, for a growing, you know, especially younger. You're talking that first few weeks after weaning, you don't want, you don't want too much fiber. And I would lean toward, yeah, again, having more prebiotics and there's kind of the traditional prebiotics of, you know, fructans or, you know, fructoligosaccharides or chicory or uh, there's, there's different forms there, galactoligosaccharides. Um, and they are, you know, have a different um, structure. You know, they're, they're more simplistic than the milk oligosaccharides are really quite complicated. And so those, you know, the, the kind of the plant-based oligosaccharides are a little bit more simple, uh, but still they, they will, you're kind of feeding the quote unquote good bacteria to kind of, again, set the stage. Like you said, early in life, you know, it's self non-self that, you know, and, and not developing allergies, it, you know, things the, the gut immune system is kind of educating itself and the microbes are kind of a key part of that and kind of feeding, feeding the microbes to a certain extent and getting, you know, the, uh, there's some bacteria that just naturally in, in, inhabit the gut, but you can have, you don't want the wrong balance kind of from, from the start. And so that can be pretty helpful. Um, so you don't want a lot of fiber necessarily for a you know, young puppy and kitten, but, but some pre, I think some, some, proper fibers there and uh, having some even for that have good water holding capacity for from a stool quality perspective can be useful. Um, adulthood, that's where 
you know, most adult pets, you know, we have a huge obesity problem in our pets. So fiber can be a benefit because it, it reduces the caloric density. Um, as I think I mentioned before, it, it can, re, you know, kind of blunt the blood glucose and, and blood blood glucose curve, you know, after a meal. Um, and it also reduce blood lipids. And so that can be helpful from a weight management perspective. Um you know, again, laxation and that kind of in the senior side, you don't want to overwhelm them with too much fiber. You know, on the senior side, people argue you know, how much protein, usually animals at a certain level will, will reduce their intake. So then you don't want to, you know, reduce things too much or have too much fiber because fiber will, at, you know, it's always going to reduce digestibility. If, you know, if nutrient intake is adequate, uh, then, then that's fine. But if, if intake you know, is reducing. And if you have any wasting, of course, then you have to be really careful with fiber. But I think from a, at least a senior pet before you, uh, assuming they're healthy, um, having adequate fiber and kind of a balance of this, you know, soluble, insoluble fiber can, can reduce caloric density. So tr- help to maintain body weight, uh, helps with maybe satiety, but also, um, just, you know, gut fill and everything is helpful and, and helps on the laxation side. Um, and a lot of people, um, you know, on, Again, that water holding capacity, it's it's not necessarily viscosity, but if the fiber has been, you know, if you have some soluble fibers that go poof, they're they're fermented really quickly. Well, they're gone. They're not going to hold on any any water. But it you want a nice mix of fiber, so some of them are not fermented completely, so they can hold on to some of that water, and so that that is ultimately what helps you, you know, with stool quality and. Um, you know, the characteristics are something that are, are I guess, at least uh, accepted by the by the pet owner. It's never going to be perfect, I suppose, but you're always going to have to deal with waste. But uh, it's it's not uh, something that's really a, a huge problem. So um, I've kind of rambled on there a little bit. So if there's other questions that we need to address specifically, you know, let me let me know. But it, it does really vary who you're talking about, like from a, the end consumer. Um, but also that I guess I, the other thing I would say is, is the basal diet. Is this an economy food? Is this a premium food? What's the format of diet? Cause the format of the diet will kind of dictate what you have and what you start with. And then maybe how fiber might be added or, or maybe you don't need any more cause you have a, a you know, a, a certain amount and you've hit a certain target by just naturally with the ingredients you have. So it, it kind of depends on what your target is and who you're, who you're dealing with. Okay. Yeah. And um, so, so the point is really too, it's complicated. Uh, There is quite, you know, you're going to probably have the highest fiber in, in diets where you're trying to improve satiety. Biggest watch out there is, uh, and, and I think, I think we're seeing this widespread, you know, if, if feed intake is restricted as well, uh, really, really watch for nutrient sufficiencies. And, um, I, you know, I, maybe I'll, I'll pound a little drum here, but most nutrients are required on a per kilogram body weight basis, not on a dietary basis. And so if you restrict food, those essential nutrients have to be much higher in that food that you're providing to that animal. Then that's kind of the middle swath. Then the ends are, are puppy and um, puppy kitten and senior pets. And what we're seeing here is as long as they're healthy, you're going to probably have less TDF in those, those formulas than you might in your adult maintenance. Um, and then maybe one more question for you, Kelly, really. And, and maybe let's focus on, on just 
loose stools, because I think this is a very common complaint from pet owners. But if a if a company wants to target improving stool quality um, in animals that maybe just have looser stools, what is your recommendation there? Yeah, it it, pr- it probably depends on some are. Um, you know, there can be some stress induced as well. There are some working dogs and some breeds that are just more prone to that. So if they're, if it's a working dog or just animals that are more prone to it, um, typically uh, you usually where, where it comes to us is, oh, there's a problem. So then you start kind of evaluating, like you said, investigating what ingredients do you have and what, what's the nutrient profile. Um, if they're, you know, some of it might be the amount of fiber. So if there's too much soluble fiber, too much fermentation going on, that's a kind of an easier one to fix. You, you need to pull it back. It's, it's too much of a good thing, basically. It, especially, again, cats have a, a lower threshold that you can really make a cat angry if you give it too much soluble fiber and, and you know they, they, they'll stop eating the food or you have really loose stool. So the, the threshold for a cat is going to be different than a dog. Um, but sometimes it's it's it could be the opposite. Maybe if you have let's say just all whole grains. And so you have uh, wheat bran and cellulose and peanut hulls and things like that. A lot of those fibers are insoluble and, and have a lower fermentability, which will provide laxation and fecal bulk basically, but they might not bind onto water very well. And that's where you need more of a mixture of something that'll hold the water. Um, you, you know, I think increased stool volume with more fiber, that's what happens. If the consistency is is acceptable, it's not as big of a problem. But if it, it be, if it becomes loose stools, well, now there's more of it and, and the water's not being held onto, um, you know, even if it's outside, it's not easy to pick up and it's not easy to clean up after that. So it, it, it kind of depends. You have to find this. That's where this balance of, um, I'd say I usually use the kind of the George Fahey rule is that uh, it, while the amount of fiber does matter, this insoluble to soluble fiber ratio of, you know, 70% insoluble, 30% soluble or 80, 20, something around there. You know, if you have really low fiber, you can probably increase that, the soluble portion because there's not that much there. But usually over just decades of experience, you're in that 70, 30 range. You're, it's a place to start anyway, where you're going to hold a lot of that fiber because you have all, you know, we long, long ago, we had a a fire, a, a, a diet that looked very similar to a, to a swine diet. It was a lot of, it was all, you know, a lot of vegetable and it was a lot of corn and a lot of legumes. And again, it, there were a lot of mushy, uh, large volume of stools that were being generated. I'll, I'll say, and it just, you, you need to have a different fiber profile. So it, it, it certainly the amount of fiber is important, but then the balance of soluble and insoluble is uh, very important. And a lot of that you just, you have to kind of you have to do the testing in the lab. If you don't know, I mean, some of it's published, but if you don't know, you you have to test it. And usually you can see, you know, what's the water, water holding capacity of this fiber. And you can literally just put a fiber in with, you know, a beaker of water sometimes and it'll, it'll firm up like a gel, like, like, you know, like Metamucil. You can see if you don't mix it with enough, it, you can eat it with a fork later because it'll, it'll, it'll firm up. And just within a, you know, 30 seconds, you can see how it's going to change some, you know, something like cellulose, it'll float to the bottom and almost look like sand. It'll, it'll hardly do anything with water. It's, so it's, it's, it, it's completely different in the food. It, it'll have different properties, but also then when it's consumed in the gut, it's going to have different properties as well. So it, um, yeah, a lot of these formulas, it's the processing, but, and then, and then, you know, it's just as much almost an art and experience 
as well as, you know, what you can just write on a piece of paper and say, this is, you know, this is a, my formula. It, um, there's some testing <laughs> that has to be done just to make sure it does work out, whether it's on the processing side or, and then palatability. Another thing too, is some of these, especially a weight loss side or too much fiber, the palatability can be an issue and stew volume then is maybe going to be an issue too that you just have to think about. So, um, yeah, that, you know, fibers usually, I kind of think I'm biased, but fiber is your friend, but again, too much or the wrong source or the wrong, you know, uh, ratio, it can, it can lead to trouble. So, yeah. And, and really, I always, when people ask me about diet transition, which is a very common, um, you know, uh, transition really, really carefully and slowly. And I'm like, well, actually it depends. Like if, if you're, you're kind of transitioning and the ingredients that you had are, are similar between the two diets and manufactured by the same person. So assuming similar processing techniques, um, then I'm not as worried unless you say, oh, we're going from a 3% TDF to a 12%. You're like, slow, slow down, slow down. This could, this could pun intended blow out. (laughs) So fiber is really that thing. uh, When we think about diet transition, that meat needs the greatest amount of transition in a way. And, and certainly I think I take a lot of learnings from the horse industry um, into that understanding because there's nothing we do quick in horse nutrition because you you change that fermented uh, that fermentation pattern in the horse and it is catastrophic to say the least. It's time for our famous three. So um, thank you uh, very much. I have a couple fun questions to ask you. Um, so the first is your favorite human fiber um, snack. I'm going to go with snack. Oh, gosh, I'd, I'd have to say, um, well, I'm not sure if it's so fun, but in our in our house, we, we you know, I have kids where some are now out of the house, but we're always running off to sports or some events. And so usually I'm, I'm going to say the boring one is some of the fiber fiber bars that we have, but where I'll just say that you have to be careful and maybe I shouldn't even say this, but I'm going to anyway, but there was, I'm not going to say any brand, but there used to be a selection in our house where we're running off to something. And there was one bar that was called the fart bar in our house because it, it, it packed a punch. And so you have to be careful if, you know, and in, whether it's in the morning or this is a midday snack or something, there's a lot of great bar that they taste delicious, but, the danger is on the human side, just like in the pet side, a lot of these are soluble now. So you can get them into the food and they're sweet and you don't even know there's fiber there. Well, you know, a few hours later that there's fiber there, but when you're eating it, you can really overeat them. And so that, that's what I usually eat is if I was going to say, but certainly, you know, from a health perspective, I'm a nutritionist as well. Um, on the human side, there's a lot of fruits and vegetables that if, if you, you know, eating salads and, and, you know, Iceberg lettuce doesn't have hardly any fiber. It has mostly water. But if you get into other salads and you have cabbage or, you know, not that some people don't like kale, but a mix of greens and other vegetables uh, can give you a lot of fiber. And, and a lot of, you know, berries and apples and things like that will give you more of the soluble fiber. So I would say if you want to probably healthier versions are, are that, but certainly the whole grains can give you a lot of fiber and then the fruits and vegetables too. But um so I probably cheated. I gave you more, way more than one answer. But if it for me, if I wanted fiber, I usually go to some of those those bars that I can just take with me. They're sweet. I like sweets, and so. Um, but 
I so. was, I always, uh, you know, I think that the old saying of an apple a day keeps the doctor away is probably when we look at the composition of an apple, we could probably whittle down why people who believe that and <laughs> did that likely had better health. So nice. yeah, there, there's those, there's a lot of whole examples, but there's a lot of opportunities. And, and I agree. I'm one of those people who has, I also won't out who it is, but I did do that once and it was it was kind of blind, like blinds, like you're just really busy. And so you, you didn't really think about that. You just downed your third fiber bar. And then a couple hours later, and you were regretting that you weren't paying attention and you should have known better because you were. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, last question, if our listeners want to know more about fiber and I will remind them, I'm inviting Dr. Swanson talk back to talk about other things. I hope everybody can see how we couldn't get to gut health because there was so much we had to talk about about fiber today. But if everybody wants to learn more about fiber um, and dive a little bit deeper into things that you talked about today, um, any suggested sources for that? Uh, you know, there some of the, the good sources, I mean, certainly um, there are some reputable sources, I think, but... Well, at least in the United States, we have the, the dietary guidelines. A lot of the recommendations, uh, you know, of eating healthy, and we've already talked about fruits and vegetables and getting your, you know, five a day or whatever. A lot of that, it, it's antioxidants and other nutrients, but fiber is part of that as well. So th- I think there are some, the government agencies on, on you know, where to, f- to find information about fiber. Um, you know, FDA has its definition of what fiber is. And so there are some documents there. Some of those are, are, are not for the faint of heart, though. I would say there, there's some serious reading when you, you kind of dive down in pretty, pretty, um, pretty deep, pretty quickly. Um, oh, gosh, I might have to. Um, that's a good question, though, that I, I know I go I go right for, you know, PubMed and system systematic reviews and things like that, where there are some really good um some sources there, some publications that kind of talk about fiber and the benefits of it. And we've done some of those even on inulin specifically. Um, so those that are more scientific, you know, science minded, I think, you know, going to PubMed, certainly you can, you can search fiber and get some, get some really good systematic reviews. A lot of those are going to be what I would say toward the human side though, whether it's cardiovascular disease, diabetes, you know, metabolic syndrome in general, you know, you know, some are of, of course, gut health as well, but, um, other than that, there's probably other agencies as well, certainly that have, you know, that have, and, and, and certainly some companies too, that are selling a lot of fibers. They have some, you have to be, be careful with just white papers, you know, peer reviewed, uh, sources are usually, I just, you know, beware, I would say of that, but, um, there are some, some good sources from a pet side. There's probably fewer sources that are, you know, pet centric, I would say, but, um, certainly there are some review papers that have been written and some, some by our group here, but, um, and there are some there are some books that come out periodically, but usually those you know like a a lot of the books are, are kind of older information. But um, but certainly, yeah, I guess those are some of the initial thoughts I would have on that. But um, I I hope I think it would be needed if we go back to the beginning of our conversation. I think uh, the Pet Food Institute, AFCO, there's going to have to be some education out there, and I think there should be some fiber centric information with this change from crude fiber to total dietary fiber, whether it's veterinarians, whether it's consumers, whether it's people in the pet food companies, I think there's a lot of education that is needed. Um, and not to, you know, it doesn't have to be selling anything. It can just be kind of defining what fiber is, these different assays and where you can find it. And, you know, 
the positives, negatives, however you want to do it. But I do think there needs to be a, uh, a source somewhere that people can go to that, um, certainly when, when it comes down to, to regulations, what is required on the label? How do you do that? You know, how do you measure it? Things like, you know, approved assays, things like that. But then you get to these other questions that I think, um, there needs to be some kind of guidance there and not just, you know, Googling something and yeah, I'm finding a random website that is maybe selling a product or something there, there should be some other information. So I'm hoping that's going to be coming out. I'm sure there will be something. And even the new label there, there's going to have to be some communication with whether, again, whether it's consumers, veterinarians, whoever it might be, um, what's not only how it's required or what's required, but how do you interpret it? Um, and then fiber, I think is going to be one of the big (laughs) things on, on the label of what's listed that, that, that value is going to change. And so what does that mean to, for people? Um, so I think there's, there, there, there's a huge gap that could be filled, I think by, by somebody that to have a, a resource there to explain a lot of this. So, um, I, I agree. We need, we need some more unbiased, more academic based, um, uh, opinion and, and, and teaching and, and, um, uh, maybe, maybe my plug, uh, for everyone who's in academia is, uh, we are here to attempt to bring in an unbiased, um, uh, approach. Um, but to do that, uh, we need money. I'm sure, I'm sure all of our universities would intake, take endowments for chairs to work on things like, uh, establishing a database of, uh, the, all the fibers included in a myriad of ingredients as an example. So these opportunities are there. The academics out there are always happy to talk with the pet food industry for that. So thank you so, so much, uh, Kelly. Uh, I can't tell you how much of an honor and a privilege it is to be working in a space along with you. Uh, you do incredible research. I also think that you're an, an incredible individual, and I'm very happy to be part of uh, this research community that I think is is positive and supportive and uh, really trying to improve the pet food industry. So thank you very much. And until next time for everybody else. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Thank you. I'm happy to come back. Ah, well, you will be coming back. Okay, okay. With that, thanks very much. Thank you.